Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. This is Jiro Taylor, your host and the founder of Flow State. Flow State is an organization that creates mind-expanding experiences and education to help visionary entrepreneurs create the future. If you're a change catalyst, a thought leader, an entrepreneur, and you have a vision that's burning inside you that you want to expand, you want to realize, then we've created a tribe just for you. It's called Flow State X, and you can check it out by going to flowstatex.com. So today's episode of the Flow State Performance Podcast number 75 is with Penny Lucaso. She's the founder of Be Kindred. She's been described as the world's first happiness hacker on a mission to teach 10 million women how to future-proof happiness by the year 2025. She was recently voted the most influential female entrepreneur in Australia, and she turned her life around after a 16-year career in the corporate world. She basically went on a quest to find out how to be happy, and now she's doing some wonderful work and really connecting the dots for uh, big organizations and helping them disrupt the, the, the way they're set up so that people in these organizations can be happy. She's extremely interested in the mental well-being of people, um, and she's very interested in exponential and emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and in this conversation we talk about some of the challenges facing the modern business and modern culture and how as a culture we are going to um, approach the future in a way that allows us all to thrive the title of this podcast is how to humanize the future of work please enjoy just sit back and enjoy this show this interview with penny lacasso Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Thank you, Penny Lacasso. Thank you for joining me, Penny. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So I will do a, I'll save your blushes by doing a, uh, the intro will have, have been done already. Um, but just quickly in your own words, Penny, just, just introduce yourself. Just tell, tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you're passionate about. Yeah, so I claim to be the world's first happiness hacker and I'm yet to meet anyone that's met another happiness hacker and I tell people the reason for that is because I made it up and I think this is the beauty of the world that we now live in is you can be whatever the hell you want to be. I set myself a ridiculous mission um, to teach 10 million women and girls by 2025 how to future-proof happiness in work and life. And I'm fortunate enough uh, recently to be voted one of the most influential females in Australia, and I've also been recently accepted into um, Singularity University's Executive Leadership Program at the NASA Research Centre over in San Francisco. So um, that gives you a little bit of context around, I suppose, me and the kinds of work that I love to do and how I'm sort of very passionate about um, operating in the space that serves the best interests of mm. humanity in a world uh, of unprecedented um, exponential growth in tech. Mm, interesting. Lots of the, the the convergence there of some of these technological and futuristic avenues that you're exploring, um, along with the angle of happiness itself, is is just so fascinating. I can't wait to dig into that. But how did you get here? Let's let's go. Can you tell me a little bit about your your background? Like, yeah, how, how is it that you're doing this work? 
I always say to people, if you had told me four years ago when I turned my life upside down that I would be where I am now doing what I'm doing, I would have said you were nuts. And I think the greatest learning in this whole process is that you have no idea what you are capable of um, and what's possible in your life. So for me, um, I worked for 16 years as an executive in a global giant otherwise known as Shell. Um, I worked in a number of jobs managing multi-million dollar companies um, but predominantly my passion was always for people and, um, and creating impactful and meaningful change. Mm. And so uh, four years ago I turned my whole life upside down in pursuit of happiness. So I was at the absolute top of my game and I started to feel unfulfilled and um, I started to create the space to understand why that was and the more I started to look inwards and try and understand this because, you know, I'd, I ticked all these boxes that people said, if you ticked it, you would be happy. And I was sitting there going, you know, I've got the the European cars in the driveway, the massive house, um, no debt. We're traveling overseas whenever we want. I've got the corporate title. What's going on? I realized that what I created was not my definition of success or happiness. And I used the two interchangeably. It was somebody else's. And when I asked myself what happiness looked like, it was fundamentally different from the life that I was living. So in a seven-month period, I turned my whole life upside down. I left uh, the 16-year career at the top of my game. I relocated my family from Perth back to Melbourne, which for those not in Australia is the equivalent of, say, moving from New York um, to LA. I um, left an 18-year relationship and I started my own company called Be Kindred with the sole intent of um, positively impacting the lives of others by helping them work out what happiness looks like and then teaching them how to make change in bite-sized pieces in order to realise that happiness. Beautiful. So how long has <laughs> Be, Be Kindred been going? In its current form, because where you start is never where you end up, um, in terms of doing what I now do, I would say three years. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Let's let's go a little bit deeper into that shell experience because it's obviously a gigantic. It's about as big as they get, right? Um, and so you were really in the belly of the beast in, in a sense that this is a giant global multinational, and you were obviously successful and your career was was going up vertically in a sense, but your happiness was not going up uh, vertically to follow suit. So what what was going wrong there? So you talked about how your this this idea of success was not yours what where, where was this variance like what, what was the gap there between this culturally kind of predefined success and and you know what you lacked oh, look there was a few things in terms of it was and people always say was there one moment where things um you woke up and went that's it and it wasn't it was like I always say it was like someone turning a dimmer up you know it wasn't like a light bulb moment it was like the dimmer gradually got turned up through um a sequence of events and in terms of what the gap was it, I had thought that up until the age of 39 I was somewhat intelligent um but I had never actually created the space to think about what made me happy in life and what gave me meaning and what I think and I mean look it sounds so big and and it and it is but I'm quite comfortable in this space it was what legacy did I want to leave what impact did I want to have on the world and I always say to people you don't have to change the whole world you might only want to change your backyard but as long as you actually have this conversation with yourself and understand what that impact or meaning is and I had a young son 
um, at the time and he was well, he's still young but he was a lot younger then and I you know I'd always done what was expected of me I'd always been tapped on the shoulder for the next great opportunity I was over in Perth because I got tapped on the shoulder off the back of maternity leave to go and um, go to the next opportunity I, you know so I returned from maternity leave early um, because I was asked to and I kind of he got to three years old and I was sick and burnt out all the time. Like I remember getting sick once a quarter really badly with bugs and flus and I would be sitting on the bed working. I never took a day off. Um, I was never really present or in the moment. I was always planning and logistically moving things around to coordinate, you know, life and I was constantly in the future. So I I found that was exhausting Um, and, and not being in the moment just didn't, you know, it wasn't helping me feel good about myself. And I also started to look at him and I was like, you're going to be big before I even know it. And and what are you seeing? Kids don't listen to what they what you say or what you tell them. They watch what you do. And I'm like, well, if he's watching me, what is his definition of success going to look like? And what sort of example am I setting? And the more I started to unpack that, I'm like, I don't want him to think that happiness and success comes from status, ego, and financial gain and excess. Mm. Um, Because in the world that I was in, even though I've got a lot of great friends that are still in the professional world and I never begrudged the career that I had because I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for um, the investment Shell made in me. Mm. But I, um, I wanted to show him that you could create a sustainable business and a sustainable living through positively impacting the lives of others. And that was my greatest motivator. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, a lot resonates there. I, I remember when I first created the space to ask what gives me meaning, like what impact do I want to make on my life? And and it's uh it's you know, it's it's a leap down a rabbit hole um that yeah. is really, you know, it kept me awake at night, you know, just like I remember like lying awake, just like the red flash of my Blackberry going off and just, just like thinking shit is is there a more meaningful path than me just making lots and lots of money working in the corporate world? Like, is this it? Like, is it because this feels like a scratch that's just not being itched uh, doing mm. um, And a lot of people in the, in, 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 in the world feel like this. And, you know, so what, what is it that's preventing the, the, the this sort of like quest for fulfillment and, and meaning in, in your opinion? Fear. Fear. And, 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 um, it's my opinion, but I also, I, I know it because I've been um, working with thousands over the last two years running a program I call, called the Fearless Masterclass. And basically I, at the start of that program, we say to people, what one change would you make tomorrow that you know would make your life happier mm-hmm. if fear didn't exist? Mm. And it's so confronting for people, right? And, and it's often in this workshop people cry. And, you know, here I am thinking I'm a happiness hacker and I'm like, I mustn't be very good at my job if I'm making everybody cry. But when you create the space for people to look inwards, it's extremely confronting. And what we find is that fear is what holds people back from being happier and being fulfilled and exploring meaning. And the biggest fear, which blows me away, is exactly what we've just touched on. The number one fear by far and above, and I've got all the data to support this, is is financial instability. Mm-hmm. People will sit in the misery of the known rather than step into the discomfort and the potential happiness of the unknown Yeah, because they don't want to risk their financial situation. 
Well, it comes down to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We've got a we've got this thing where we 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 need to feel like we can survive, right? But it's just and survival, obviously, on a biological level, means like water and shelter and food and things sure. like that. But we've we've kind of created this false narrative around survival. Um, it's survival of the Ooh. ego, in a way. It's survival of that's identity. exactly. It's right? exactly what it is. Yeah, it, it's exactly what it is, and it's so interesting because. In the work that I do, I work with people that earn a hell of a lot of money and um, I have never seen more unhappy people in my life. Mm. And I, actually, I say I actually think um, the mental well-being of professionals is at a crisis at the moment and so much of it is driven by the fact that they are not living lives where they understand what gives them meaning and fulfilment. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're, they're tied to, to the, the financial gain associated with the careers that they've created and it's almost become a trap. Um, and, and I actually think that I can tell you, as I say, I've worked with thousands. The money doesn't make people happy. I mean, money buys choice, yeah, and choice is a good thing, but you, you don't need a shitload of money to be happy in life. And I actually see that the more money people have, um, it almost appears like the more unhappiness they have not not the happier they are and the other misconception is people assume that if people make and you would know this from your life if people make a stack of money they save more money but what i observe is they actually just overcommit themselves even more the more people earn often the more debt they have and that just then creates this self-perpetuating circle of where they feel even more trapped and can't step into a life that they're happy with because they're overcommitted and trying to service debt Mm. And I try and highlight to people, you know, people say to me, I'd love to do what you do, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't walk away from the salary. And I mm. say, why? And they're like, oh, because I've got a mortgage or I've got kids in private school and I've got a debt on the car. And I'm like, all of that stuff's a choice, which is absolutely fine if you make that choice consciously and you're willing to make it at the compromise of your mental well-being if it's impacting it. And I can tell you for many people it is. It's creating a lot of stress. Mm. But at the end of the day, you can choose not to have those things. I choose not. To, I choose not to own a home anymore, and it's been the best thing I've ever done. Wow, so that, that is disruptive in itself. Like living in a country with the level of obsession around home ownership, right? It's 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 like this like malignant kind of like virus that's spread throughout our culture. It's like you must own, you must own, you must get on the ladder. That's quite a disruptive but freeing. Thing I can imagine. Like what, what's at the root of your choice to not own a home? I owned a home. I, my ex-husband and I paid off our first home when we were 32, mm-hmm. um, worked our asses off, you know, saved all our money and paid off the house. And then, um, and then we sold it and he's quite an astute, um, well, he's very astute financially, and he said to me, the top, you know, economists and investors in the world don't actually choose to invest in personal property as a strategy um, for financial growth. And he said, um, we're better investing our money in other things um, rather than a home. And it was a massive mindset leap for me, but it was really interesting once we did it. And, and then when I left Shell, you know, that money that I would have otherwise tied up in a home and taken on more debt created me the freedom to actually um, have the time to build, uh, to reinvent myself and build a career with meaning. And now I just sit there and I actually like the fact that I'm not attached to anything I can move whenever I want and um, be wherever I want and I just I'm I'm yet to be convinced that a house 
buying a house makes people happy. Again, all I seem to see is no one truly owns their homes. It's very rare. Most people own debt um, and that debt creates a burden. So I actually find it very liberating. So I don't care to ever own a house again. And I'm one of the, I'm 42 and I'm one of the only people I know in my sort of circle that's in that space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's, uh, that's interesting. The, my, my feeling is that the grand illusion is that these external things are going to bring us happiness, whether it's the, the house or the CEO title or the, the stack of money, right, or the being able to go on holiday to Barbados whenever we want. Um, but actually there's an inner thing that we all want. Like, well, there's a, it's actually a feeling that, that, that we all intrinsically want, whether you're a CEO of a bank um, or whether you're, you're a young child, uh, you actually just really want to feel whole, you want to feel accepted, you want to feel alive, you want to feel yeah. fulfilled, you want to feel stretched, you want to feel like, like this thing that we're doing called life is meaningful and joyful and exciting and exhilarating. Like surely that's actually what we want, right? So you agree? <laughs> like, so, yeah, so, yeah, so somewhere along the line, there's like this, this like glitch in the matrix where people are like thinking, oh, well, if, if I work for 40 years at NAB um, and climb up the ladder and get more money, then this is going to get me happiness. But I think, but they must know in their heart of hearts that happiness is a state of being that like when, when they were just feeling ebullient and joyful. Like, it's such an interesting thing and it's so funny people always like oh you know you you you're selling happiness you know and it's like well you know what's bull, what bullshit you know it's what mm-hmm. is happiness and it's like well I can tell you what happiness is for me but you need to work out what it is for you and for me happiness is having the skills the resources and the support to be able to ride the wave of every emotion in life and come out the other side a little bit better than what I was before because the reality is life is going to throw shit at you. Bad stuff's going to happen. It happens to all of us. But for me, happiness is knowing that I have within me the capability and the mindset to be able to move through that in a way that's meaningful and in a way that I can learn and, as I say, come out the other side just that little bit better. And for me, that works. That's what my definition of happiness is. Beautiful. And I love the way that you say it's, it's an individual thing, you know, it's, you, you've got to go on your own quest to find out what it is. Um, yeah. And if you don't know what it is, then you should be bloody asking yourself, you know, you can't be something if you can't see it, you know, if you don't know what it is, it's, it's a, and it's funny, you know, like the other thing that I've gotten really passionate about late, lately is um, the, the word busy. Uh, the, the, can I swear? Am I allowed to swear? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Busy, the word busy fucks me off. It's the most ridiculous word. And it's so, overused in our current society what and I actually say busy for me equals bullshit busy is just a catch-all for the fact that I actually feel totally overwhelmed and I'm just mentally overstimulated um and it says to me that you you know you're struggling with prioritizing and yeah it's a catch-all so I don't use the word busy anymore and it's been so interesting for me in this journey and how language can shift your mindset and your Mm -hmm. ability to realise opportunity and possibility and happiness in life. And so I don't use busy anymore and I encourage people to do the same. I use the word positively occupied. Mm-hmm. And so when people say to me, how are you? I say, I'm positively occupied. And they're, and they're like, what? 
like it's it's so interesting to watch the reaction on people's face. And I can't claim this as my own. A good friend of mine, Julie Trell, um, who heads up Miru D, Telstra's innovation um, lab, she gave this gift to me and it's changed my life because if you say I'm positively occupied, so for me I am. I'm doing things that I love to do every day, so it's true. But I encourage other people to use it rather than busy. And then I say to them, if you feel like you're saying positively occupied and it doesn't ring true or that you, you know, you're actually not positively occupied, then you should be asking yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Totally, totally. It's like a self-challenge, yeah? Because yeah. you yeah. should be positively occupied. I mean, who wants to be negatively occupied? Yeah, and I it's just, that. I think, a more conscious way to look at how much noise you've got going on in your life. Because I actually believe probably, and like there's books like Essentialism, there's books like um, Deep Work, which I just read that's changed my life. But 80% of what we do is just noise. Mm. Yeah. I thank you for speaking to that. Like the, the glorification of both hustling and being busy are two of the uh, malignant pieces of code that I wish to see squashed in, in our lifetime. <laughs> like what is all this bullshit about? hustling like like this glorification that to be some sort of success in our culture you've 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 got to be busy and you've got to put the 100 hour weeks in but also like you said to the point of being busy it's like busy is a failing busy is something going wrong busy is a is an inability to manage your life like it's busy is not a a, a like a badge of honor and, no uh, it's not and I love that the positively occupied is 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 awesome because of the 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 the, um, the emphasis on the word positively occupied. I I like to talk about being like when people say how are you doing like and I sit and I actually catch myself the words busy come into my mind and I'm like because it's culture I'm like no um, yeah I'm 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 full life is full right now like I'm hot yeah I like I'm that full. yeah yeah because it's because it's actually the root of the word fulfilled right. So like ah. if you think about like what is what has fulfilled me like it's full it's I'm full of being full fullness right that's the way I look at it um, so yeah words and language do have a very powerful impact on the way that we we we, we look at our life so let's go a little bit deeper into your present uh, work I know that you've got a lot of things going on um, just explain to 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 me and to the viewer a little bit about uh, what what some of your doing is. Um. Yeah. So the, there's two main streams at the moment and it's really interesting. I mean, you work with startups. I mean, for me, um, I want to, I want to change the world. So maybe that's crazy. Maybe like, maybe the dream is too big, but I want to positively impact the world. And so doing what I do and looking at how we do it in a way that's scalable is really important, but equally in a world where so much of what we do is online, I, um, I'm trying to scale with a huge overlay of human connection because I honestly believe human connection is foundational for, for us to be able to thrive and be mentally well and happy in the future. So at the moment, the two mainstreams of what Be Kindred does is um, I do keynote speaking um, as a, you know, a, a perceived, I call myself uh, a humanity futurist because I actually want to protect the goodness that is in humanity that I see is being diminished. Um, so I do a lot of keynotes around um, fear being our future and the greatest lever we have for creating um, the life and the work that we, we want and that makes us fulfilled. Um, and I also talk um, a lot around, um, I've got a new talk called WTF Are We Doing? Because obviously I can't say what the fuck are we doing in corporate, um, which is really around, like we are saying earlier, shining a spotlight on where AI and tech is at um, and how it is going to fundamentally shift our lives and um, 
and how we work in just the next five years and helping people understand how they can start to drive a future off the back of self-accountability in order to positively direct where humanity and society goes. So um, I that's my keynote piece. I do a lot of talking um, in that space. And then the other piece is... I call it, I want to create, well, I'm creating, um, you know, it's an educational company. And so what we do, predominantly we work with um, large sort of technology community groups and uh, organisations with over 500 employees and we are creating educational programs where we go in and teach them um, the key skills to be able to future-proof the self and also the business in a world that's, uh, you know, unprecedented, um, uncertain and, um, you know, and, and immersed in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And all of our future-proofing is not around the technical skills for the future, it's around the uniquely human skills that will enable us to thrive and differentiate ourselves from AI and remain relevant. So, um, so yeah, they're kind of the two. So it's, it's education. And the other thing that's been really powerful since I started doing the whole concept of future-proofing is that we're starting to get, to get pulled into schools. And for me as a mother and for me as someone who is a change expert and has worked in change for years, I can work with adults and I can, it, it, it's a lot harder, it's possible, but it's a lot harder to change embedded habits. But working with children and being able to shift a generation in this space um, for me is a very powerful place to play in. So, yeah, whilst we're currently working with large organisations, there's a huge opportunity with schools and I'm very excited about what that's going to look like because I think yeah. education sucked. <laughs> oh, I think- I'd, love, I'd love to introduce you to my a friend of mine called Bodhi Whitaker and his partner Kat. They run the Breathe Project, but they go into schools on the front lines, going into assemblies, standing in front of a 1,000 students and teachers and teaching them how to accept themselves essentially like they teach a breathing technique they teach a mindfulness technique but essentially it comes down to those are just gateways gateways to actually like uh, perceiving yourself as more than someone who uh, partakes in tests and and all these sort of like mechanisms to judge what kind of like cog you're going to be in the machine Um, thank you for stepping into the educational space it's so if you, yeah, I, I can see how you must care about the future if you're going to the kids, you know. They- oh, I love it. I lo- and you know what? It's mind-blowing. It's been the most mind-blowing experience for me. One is um, whilst the education model is broken and not fit for, for the future, there are a lot of teachers in there with the right intent who clearly want to shift the future. And it's like how do we harness them to actually create a model that works? And the other thing that's mind-blowing is I cannot tell you how smart these young people are and you know my biggest challenge I've started to bring these young people uh, onto panels that I run called humanizing the future of work with top executives from like PwC and um, Medibank and places like that because one of the things that I'm extremely passionate about is um, intergenerational collaboration I think that there is a huge divide between the generations more so than ever there's a huge lack of understanding which then creates a lack of empathy And then we have a huge gap in terms of intergenerational learning and sharing. So actually bringing these young people into um, opportunities where they can share their perspectives in a way that's meaningful and insightful um, and and bridges that gap I think is massively powerful because, um, you know, there's a lot of 
um, resentment towards millennials and 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 the younger generation. And the more I spend with more time I spend with younger people. I mean, so many of them are reverse mentors for me. I learn so much. It's just, it's all a mindset. It's like, open your mind, guys. You know, just because you're old, it doesn't mean you know everything. Um, and, and I'm not talking old, old people. I mean, this kind, I'm 42. A lot of people in my generation are resentful towards the younger generation. So I think that's one of the biggest opportunities we have to evolve humanity is bridging um, the divide between the generations and, and our understanding and empathy for one another. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. You know, I've, one of my clients says, was, was building his tech startup and they reached that stage where they had funding and it was like, right, let's hire a leadership team. So they go out and they hire all these VPs and they're all like 45-year-old yeah. you know, like people who have done 15 years working for Yahoo or whatever. And they, so all of a sudden, this young, lean startup with infinite potential and led by leaders with incredibly growth mindsets and now this middle management layer comes in with their, with their old world views, essentially. Bureaucracy, yeah. Bureaucracy, hierarchy, protection, distrust, things have got to go through me, power hoarding, silos, all of these sorts of things all of a sudden just infected this startup. Just Well, because their whole premise is to manage risk. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And the new fast growth business model that makes them so successful is that they're willing to take more risks. They're open to failure. They create, they cultivate cultures that, um, you know, that, that live off fear. They're safe spaces for fears to be shared and used as learning opportunities mm. and to connect people and to build teams. Um, it's funny, we spoke earlier before we started this conversation. I talk a lot about, you know, that remaining relevant has never been more relevant for the big end of town. Like companies, big global giants are struggling to remain relevant and they're trying to transform and they don't know how to innovate. You know, innovation becomes a department, not a way we do business. And I often say, you know, you want to innovate. I think I was saying to you earlier, we yeah. wipe, out, wipe out half your management team just for a week and bring in diversity in generations, bring in some young people, bring in some high school students and ask them what they would do to change in your organisation to make it more innovative. Because I guarantee you, you would get a shitload of ideas mm. that would fundamentally turn things on their head, but no one would be willing to do it. It's too risky. Mm. I've got another solution, <laughs> and it's, but I love your solution and I think we should try that uh, for sure. Like another solution <laughs> that I've got uh, that, I'm, that, I'm, that I'm rolling out a pilot of uh, soon is to take the leadership team. Like, right, we're going on a vision quest together and we whip them away from their offices and we take them to um, someplace in nature, a retreat centre um, or somewhere potentially even more rustic than that. And we just strip away all of these, create separation from all of the job titles and all the fears and everything like that. And we go deep into self-awareness and spiritual practice, essentially. And we take them on a rite of passage where they essentially gain a deeper level of awareness of what it is to be a human being, stripped away of the identity of I'm a VP of corporate finance or I'm, I'm head of people or whatever it is. And just, they just become human again, right, for a few days. And in this state, we can, we can bring in meditation like depends how extreme you want to go there's clients of mine who i've taken on plant medicine journeys as well um this is you know definitely not the the, the mainstream corporate end of town that i'm working in here but uh, you get them into visionary states like i'm essentially talking the only challenge with that and as you as someone who's worked in change is will show up if they have to but they've got to be they've got to want to change yeah and and i i honestly believe that they're 
there are a lot of people like in schools, yeah, there are a lot of people in corporations who who do want to change, but there's equally a lot of people at executive level who don't. Yes. And if they're not open to it, they'll get the benefit of what you're talking about. Mm. As someone who is open to it, the only way you get the benefit is if your mind is ready to say, you know what, I'm just going to put myself 150% into something that's really uncomfortable. And it's interesting, I went, um, are you familiar with Pause Festival? No. The Pause is the, the biggest innovation festival held here in Melbourne and the guy that heads it up is a wonderful guy, his name's George Hedden, and they run it every year. And this year George decided they bring some of the most unbelievable um, speakers from around the world in the world of tech and innovation to talk. And this year George said there's a huge opportunity to take um, 25 of those speakers and a, and a couple of other people away on a retreat for a weekend, a lot like what you've talked And the retreat was all around play. It was for grown-ups to play. And it was the most unbelievable weekend I've had in I don't know how long um, in terms of you, you got to hang out with people that were totally your people, but there was, like you say, there was no titles. It wasn't how important are you. We didn't talk about who we, like what we did. We all had fake names. We had play names. So you had to make up a play name when you got there. So at the, at the end of the weekend, it was so funny because no one really knew what anyone did and no one actually knew anyone's real name because we, we had the play names had become the reality. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting how it shifted the whole dynamic of the weekend and it created a tribe within two days. And like I said, that was in February and this has become the most unbelievable peer network that I've got now globally and the opportunities it's presented has been amazing. Wow. Yeah, just from dropping mm. into that flow, dropping into to the to the playful state. Yeah, it's Absolutely. so so powerful what comes from that state. And that's that's why I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing, is because you you create that state shift from busy mind, from fear. And you take human beings and you give them permission to just let it all go. Just stop pretending to be this thing. Let's just play. Let's make up silly names and let's go run around in the forest like idiots. And that's exactly right. And exactly. it was liberating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So liberating. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Let's go into the solution space a little bit and um, mm. let's, let's go a little bit deeper into um, how, how can we humanize the future of work? You know, we've touched on it. We've touched on these, these things, these concepts like, like play and liberation and, and, and um, like giving yourself permission to ask the deep questions. Now, what do you feel like are some of the, the this really important pillars um, or challenges that we have to break through as change makers to help humanize the, the future of work. So again, as a change expert, you cannot. I always feel like I'm talking at an AA meeting when I say this. You can't make change unless you're aware. And I actually, honestly, believe from the work that I'm doing, 80% of our population has no fucking idea of how far advanced artificial intelligence is, and how it is going to fundamentally shift how we work and live. Now. Unless people, I mean, you don't need to know the intricate details, but one of my biggest drives and the reason I started to do keynotes was I want to create as much awareness as possible. And I do it off the back of fear. I show people the best and the worst of where what's coming. Because if people don't understand how this is not only going to impact their lives, but actually impact humanity, they won't care enough to change. Yeah. So um, the first thing is become curious, become curious about the future, become curious about where technology is heading. And so that's, I actually encourage people to create what I call a curiosity list, write down all the things you're curious about that you know little or nothing about, and then Mm -hmm. circle the one that jumps off the page the most and start learning about it. Curiosity is one of the key skills to be able to thrive in the future. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing that I've become very passionate about is that um, government exists for a reason, but at the moment I think government is equally um, uh, unprepared for what's coming. So I've become extremely passionate about trying to get in front of government as much as I possibly can to build awareness around the future because I think one of the biggest challenges we have is the number of macro technologies that will come on stream in the next five to ten years that are going to significantly displace people within our society. And I actually think the challenge we have is not how we um, close the, the inequality gap, it's how do we actually ensure that the inequality gap doesn't widen. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, how do we how do we future-proof humanity? I think that we need to try and make government more aware and more accountable in this space. And, again, there's not a lot going on. So that, that's a big dream. And, and, yes, I know shifting government is hard, but, you know, I'm one of, I think I'm the only small business owner that's been called up to the Senate inquiry next week to actually speak um, to the Senate Committee for the Future of Work and the Future of Workers around the impacts of AI and tech amongst the biggest technology companies in the world. And it was because I'm passionate about this and their applications for submissions are closed and someone made me aware of it. And so I contact them and I said, I'm really passionate. I want to make change. This is who I am. Please let me submit something. And I did and they read it and they said, we want to call you up. So care, you know, just 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 care about humanity. I think, you know, that that's, you can't care unless you know what's coming. So get curious, mm. you know, start to have conversations with people around, you know, your, your perspectives on the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've started running events called Humanising the Future of Work, where I get people to do exactly this from different generations. And people love it because it's an eye opener for people. Um, but as much, we need to start talking about this stuff. Um, so yeah, curiosity, I think start to have conversations around the future because there's a hell of a lot of ostrich syndrome going on where people are burying their heads in the sand, hoping someone else is going to work this out. And I can tell you, if we leave this to the people that are actually driving it at the moment, I actually think it will be to the demise of humanity. There are very few people that are um, in positions of power at the moment around where this is heading, and I don't necessarily believe that the majority of them are acting within the ethical best interests of humanity. Um, and the, the the third thing that I think is is really powerful, which has been um, very insightful for me, is I talk a lot about learning to get comfortable with discomfort. One of the yes. key ways we can start to thrive as individuals in the future is by using fear as a lever rather than a barrier, mm-hmm. using it as an accelerator rather than a handbrake. Fear is the greatest opportunity we have to create happiness in our lives, to create work and lives that we actually find fulfilling. Everything that has happened for me in the last four years since I stepped out of the corporate world that has been game-changing and transformational has been when I have stepped into the most uncomfortable spaces um, and stepped into fear. And so I talk a lot about this practice of micro-bravery, which is doing little things every day that scare you. And it can be, it's totally relative to who you are. So it can be as simple as talking to a stranger in the street. It might be reaching out to someone you've been admiring on social media and asking them out for coffee. But doing little things every day that scare you build your courage and confidence and your resilience to be able to step into bigger risks and bigger opportunities over time that make you feel very uncomfortable. Mm. What about like something like doing a keynote in a swimsuit? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I did do that. So I yeah, that, that and that was yeah, that was um that was that was never a PR stunt. So what happened was um it was March last year. I was asked to speak at a conference for 150 professional women and it was all around levelling up their careers and they wanted me to come and talk about tactics to make happy change in your life. And I knew the other speakers. I knew they were all going to be absolute rock stars and I'm like I was on at 2.30 in the afternoon. They were serving wine at lunchtime. I'm like how do I keep these guys awake, let alone get them to take away just one message that will shift their thinking and impact them enough to want to try and make change when they leave that room. And I had one of those light bulb moments in the middle of the night and I'm like, that's it. Because I knew the one message that I wanted to leave with that audience um, was that, you know, happy, happy change is made when you learn to get comfortable with discomfort. And I was like, how am I going to show that in a way that these women will relate to? And so I basically walked out on the stage and I dropped my dress and I stood there in my bathing suit at the age of 41 with a body built for comfort, not for modelling. And um, I said, love me or hate me, you won't forget me. And if there's just one thing you take away from today, it's that happy change is found when you learn to get comfortable with discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly tell you it doesn't get any more fucking uncomfortable than this. <laughs> and, before I, and, like, before I'd even, like, that was, like, the first three minutes or two minutes of and it was like I got a standing ovation and I knew that there was not a woman in that room that could not relate to how uncomfortable mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. because I've never met a woman, be she tiny or curvaceous, mm-hmm. that doesn't have body image issues. Mm-hmm. And just doing that alone, I had so many women come up to me in that room and say, you've just helped me step into a fear in a way I never imagined because what you've done is provided a baseline and doing what you just did, you know, or doing what I, I want to do to make change and step into fear is nowhere near as scary as what you just did. So I'd normalise fear for them. Mm-hmm. That went, I mean, that was a game changer for me. It got shared on social media and I ended up with over 50,000 views of my blog that I wrote I did it and I was getting emails from around the world, people saying, this is genuine leadership. This is someone who walks their talk and, you know, this is this is what it means to live a life true to who you are and, and truly positively impact the lives of others. Mm. Vulnerability. Like it's so powerful, isn't it? It's uh, Oh, my God. It's, it's, yes. It, it's, the, it's a frontier that... For, for me, it, it, this, this whole dimension of vulnerability and authenticity, it, it's, so, it's so personal to me because I have the felt experience of spending most of my 20s faking it um, and, 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 literally, and like pretending to, to, to be someone, as, as a lot of people do in the corporate world, right? We, we wear this kind of like suit of armor. Um, and so like the, the power of vulnerability is something that I've had a felt experience of. Like when you just shed the layers and you just speak your truth, it's like it's fucking scary um, but it opens it, it pierces the armor of other people and it, and it lands in their hearts and it allows and it gives them the power to to, to share so there's this contagious effect to, to vulnerability I find have you have you found Correct. that as well I find the more I am myself the more I attract the people that are right for me and I, I would say to people now you know I, I I don't care what people think of me anymore I don't care to be liked hmm. you know I'm not I'm not here to live this life for everybody else. I'm here to live this life true to who I am and my own happiness. And um, I, the only validation I seek, it's taken a long time, the only validation I seek is my own. Um, so, you know, stepping into vulnerability and owning who you truly are can, can open up doors that you never imagined possible and, and it allows you to let go of this innate need that we seem to have to be liked by people we don't even like ourselves. Totally. You know, you don't have to be liked by everybody. For me, if I've got a small tribe of people that are the people that kind of 
believe in the same things as me and 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 truly want to make the world a better place i'm fine with that absolutely that's great to hear as well refreshing you know in this world of social media i imagine there's just like generations of 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 kids teenagers who are growing up in this like kind of artificial social world in a sense but now it's very real but where there must be this like hypersensitivity around being liked or it must create this new dimension you know like at least when we were kids it was like we, we they were like we might have had six friends and there's the two girls or boys that we don't like and they don't like us but now there's like all of a sudden access to thousands of people and we can write a blog post and it can get we can get all these negative comments from people in like south africa or mozambique yeah. we've never met before and it can create an effect in in our in our conscious mind which is just crazy when you think about the effect that must be having on a multiplied level you know so it's it's a really important message that you're sharing there to not give a fuck about what what other people think you know no but it's also i mean it's also i mean it's mentally impacted me i mean i've got to the point where i I barely, other than for business purposes, I barely touch social media now. And Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how turning off my phone for long blocks of time, which I do proactively now after I read the amazing book by Cal Newport called Deep Work, Mm -hmm. which totally changed everything for me in the last couple of months. But turning my phone off um, for blocks of time so I can do deep focus work on the things that matter for me and also um, really disconnecting for social media other than um, just to share what I'm doing in my business mm-hmm. or respond to messages. I mm-hmm. cannot tell you as someone who's never been anxious or overwhelmed in doing that, how much noise and busy and, um, you know, and overwhelmed that has review, re- released my life. My, yeah. my shoulders have dropped and I just feel um, I'm, I'm doing less work than I've done in the whole time since I started this business and I'm so much more productive and I have more opportunities than I've ever had. And I'm disconnected more often and I'm only checking my emails twice a day. So important. And I think this needs to be drawn into this conversation around how, how we humanize the, the future of work or how we humanize the future of culture. Because uh, what you're talking, like deep work, the book by Cal Newport is awesome. The, the, the concept is that if you're, if you're just, if we don't do something about it, we're going to spend our lives being con- increasingly bombarded by attention grabbing technologies and therefore, we're going to live our lives in a distracted state of being, which is going to lead to lower performance and lower happiness, right? So we have to take control of our attention. And it's, I think, I think this is a, thank you for like bringing that up because this is, this is so important. I often think that it, it's so basic, um, but yet so powerful for someone to understand that like by, by simply this this is how I feel about AI and, 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 and the future of robots in, in a sense. I think like those who haven't developed attentional control are going to be the first ones whose heads are on the chopping block when it comes to automate some sort of process. Because if you can't, if you can't keep your mind focused on one thing, if you can't do deep work, then how can you possibly express the thing that makes you unique from the machine? Like the, the human creativity, the expression, like the, do you see what I'm saying? I totally agree. And I don't think people realize how distracted they are. And it was so interesting reading this book and starting to employ some of the practices and turning off my phone. I never realized how often I was checking it and how often it was distracting me and how hard it was when I first started to just focus on one task for two hours. Well, I remember in my younger years in the corporate world, that was not uncommon because you didn't have, you know, devices and things like that. But 
it, I don't think we realise how unconsciously distracted we are and how it is impacting not only uh, it's impacting our mental wellbeing, but it's impacting our ability to develop key skills that, again, will enable us to differentiate ourselves from AI in the future. And, you know, Kel talks about the fact that we are programming neural pathways to be constantly distracted and it's very hard to reprogram our brains once they are programmed that way. And we've created a whole generation of young people that know no different. Whereas at least, you know, those of us that are a bit older know the difference, so it's a lot easier to revert back. But if you know no different, it's, it's your normal. And I think this is playing heavily into, without a doubt, is playing heavily into why there is so much mental unrest in our society. Mm. And that's the other massive concern that I have about the future. We already have a society that is not change capable. Yeah, I think a lot of our population does not deal well with change. They're already overwhelmed and overloaded. We know anxiety is at the highest levels it has ever been in our society. And we are just compounding, throwing change on people. And the, and the change is only going to get faster and more disorientating. Mm-hmm. So what is, and, and no one's controlling it. No one's saying, do we want this level of change? No one's sitting there saying, just because this tech can do it, do we want this tech to do it? And how is that going to impact humanity and you know and and the mental wellness of our, our society no one's overlaying that filter and that's what i find extremely disturbing which is why i'm so adamant at, at pushing government around this stuff there there's got to be a way to consciously look at what we're doing and and help skill society to be able to consciously embrace it but equals equally consciously reject it if it's not what we want because mm. at the moment I just feel like it's imposed. It's just like it's just coming, it's coming, it's coming, and um, and no one's questioning. It. And the other thing I find interesting is that human beings. Like, I talk a lot a lot about the hive mind and the fact that there's a lot of work going on at the moment to actually connect human beings with artificial intelligence and have a global mind. And when I share this with people in keynotes, they're blown away. They're like, "That's bizarre. It's so sci-fi." And I'm like, "This technology exists now. They're already working in it, so it's coming." Yeah. And they're like, "And I'm like, and you think that's insane? You think that's crazy? But you also saw, thought breast implants were crazy. People thought ATM machines were crazy. They thought mobile phones were weird." It's amazing as human beings what we can normalise. It's amazing. (laughs) It is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Thank you so much uh, for this work. I I, I really honour the the, the passion that you're bringing to it. Um, Just finally, before before we close, um, I've got this burning interest in uh, visionaries like I, I feel like visionaries are, are, are so important for for for, our, for humanity for the planet um, because the inability to have a clear vision of a desired future state uh, is the surest path to just maintenance of the status quo or decline mm. uh, and um, by contrast the ability for people to hold a clear vision of a desired future state and then do something about it is our most powerful path towards this desired future. So I'd love to hear just a little bit more about, about your vision uh, for the future that, that drives you forward. It's so funny because I am so um, optimistic. I'm probably one of the most positive people you would meet and the more time I spend researching AI and tech, the more disturbed I become. And I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic but my vision for the future without conscious intervention from more people than just me um, 
is actually not a good one. I, I mean, Elon Musk talks about the fact that, you know, he's lobbying the government with the top tech um, innovators in the world to say that they should put a ban on um, artificial intelligence weapons. Um, he sees AI as the greatest threat to humankind. Now, whether you like Elon Musk is irrele- Elon, uh, you know, is irrelevant. Um, but if if this this guy is the one that has the most to gain from artificial intelligence in many ways, mm-hmm. and yet he's saying it is, you know, there's a lot of talk about it being the, the last great invention of mankind because we're actually going to eradicate ourselves with it. And the technology that I'm seeing now, it's totally possible. You know, it is totally possible, and it's possible in the short term, not in the long term. Mm. So. Um, my vision for the future is that we can wake up the most influential people in our society to not wake up, but we or maybe make aware is the word because it's not like they're asleep. But I want to get as many influential people in our society to start talking about this stuff and start helping the masses become more conscious um, around where AI and tech is heading mm. and start having the conversations around what we want the future to look like and some sort of conscious judgment calls around, you know, a filter that says, is this technology that's being evolved, you know, and, and may, maybe this is optimistic, but is this piece of technology actually going to long-term enhance our society or is it going to diminish it? Mm. So, you know, I think, yeah, that's... I, I like the word that I choose to use, which you, you started with wake up, which is that I, I kind of like that. Because we're, because many people are sleeping in a sense, um, and then you use make aware. But another word that's come to my field is is activate. Like activate. Is, oh, let's let's activate. I as many people, people. Yeah, yeah, I want them to care. I want them yeah. to care as much as me because, yeah, I, I've got a seven year old. You know, and, and most of the people I talk to, the audiences I talk to, most of them have children or mm-hmm. want to have children. Yeah, what are we? You know, what are we leaving for the next generation? And are we leaving them anything? And it's interesting when you spend time with the next generation and you talk to them about the things that they fear most. They actually believe that they're the first generation that's going to be worse off than the last. Mm. And to be honest, I don't disagree with them if something doesn't change. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Let's, uh, that's, a, that's a powerful vision. Let's activate as many influential people as we can to have the conversations around tech and AI about what the future looks like so that we can start getting, creating like conscious interventions or filters um, so yeah. that we can create the future that we actually want for our children yeah correct the last thing we need more of is less human connection we need yeah. more human connection not less <laughs> and a lot of the technology we're evolving is about convenience it's not about humanly connecting us and with the rate of loneliness more than doubling in the last 20 years and as i say the mental well-being of our society at crisis levels i don't think more convenience is actually going to help us I think in some ways if it, if it creates a greater divide between human connection, it's actually going to create a hell of a lot mm. more problems. Let's call it there. Thank you so much. There's so much to talk about, uh, but I feel like we've really touched on some powerful points there around uh, humanising the future of work and also culture. Um, so thank you so much, Penny, for, for tuning in with us and sharing your insights. Uh, we, uh, I wish you best of luck on your um, singularity um, adventure where you're going to study with some of the world's leading scientists and thinkers in, in the AI space and represent Australia. I will, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. That was a fascinating conversation with Penny from B Kindred. 
I really enjoyed uh, talking about the future and some of the challenges that our society faces. And some of these challenges are really leveraged by the current state of the corporate world. And Penny and I have both had uh, pretty long stints in the corporate world, so we know that world well. We've both chosen to break away and create a life of our own design. And it's amazing what happens when you create the space in your life to ask the deep questions. That was one of the greatest takeaways I took from that. Another of the takeaways from that conversation is that Penny's uh, realization that the number one fear that keeps people trapped in unfulfilling work is the fear of financial instability. The paradox is that both Penny and I have faced financial instability when we quit uh, the stable grounds of, of income and salary. And both of us talked about how we've never been more happy. We've never felt more free. In fact, the, uh, the more money, <laughs> the most money I had was when I was around 25, 26 um, in terms of like um, getting paid from other people. And it was the most unhappy time of my life. Very interesting uh, relationship there to sort of challenge uh, some of the uh, ways in which people look at money. Um, Penny's conversation about micro bravery and taking small steps to face fear was very interesting. And her claim that artificial intelligence could be our last technology is very sobering and very definitely a call to action to um, approach artificial intelligence. And this is one of Flow State's um, real drivers is to help the visionary entrepreneurs who are doing stuff in things like blockchain, artificial intelligence, and virtual reality, but to help them develop self-awareness, to help them develop inner wisdom, to help them develop compassion, to help them develop all the things that determine how human and alive uh, these people can possibly be so that when they approach this, uh, when, when they work with these technologies, they do so from this solid foundation of being really human and caring for humanity and our planet. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you're looking for a way to get into flow states quicker, I made a very simple four-step formula called the flow formula. And there's also four videos that goes with it. If you want this, you simply have to go to flowstate.co forward slash get in flow. That's flowstate.co forward slash get in flow. If you're a visionary entrepreneur and you want to be surrounded by other visionaries, other eagle spirits, other people thinking, dreaming a big game and doing something about it, then check out flowstatex.com. I'd love to see you on the inside of that community. We've got some amazing podcasts and interviews with visionaries and big thinkers and change catalysts coming up for you in this uh, Flow State series. Until next time, keep it flowy. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.